Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. Hello and welcome to Marketing Week Meets, a monthly podcast in which we speak to a marketing luminary about their life, career and thoughts on the state of the marketing universe. Our criteria for interview subjects is this, people who've made a mark in marketing and of course have an opinion or two. Our guest today ticks both of those boxes. Rita Clifton has been varyingly described as the doyen of branding, a brand guru and most recently by us, the queen of branding. And with almost 40 years in marketing services, building brands, such praise is well-deserved. Her career highs include chair of Saatchi and & Saatchi and chair of Interbrand, where she was at the forefront of a push to get brands recognised as financial assets on a company's balance sheet. She's also the author of several books on branding and a serial non-executive director, taking on a number of gigs with some of the UK's best-known brands. She's currently imparting a considerable wisdom at Nationwide Building Society and ASOS. The Queen of Branding was also given the Royal Seal of Approval in 2014, being awarded a CBE for services to advertising. Rita Clifton, CBE, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. How did it feel when you were awarded the CBE? Gobsmacked, I think might be a word. I tell you what, the great joy of that whole event was it was a genuine surprise. I think the thing that was so affecting was that actually some people are bothered to write in. I gather this is how it works. So people have to write in. And the fact that however many busy people wrote in to say that they thought I deserved it and here's why, that was quite something. I think the other thing that was really quite something was that my mum sat not 10 paces away from her madge at the ceremony. I mean, it's very nice. Thank you for the whole Queen of Branding thing. But that was the real thing. Um, my mother, who was sadly in a wheelchair by that time, and she uh, has uh, has since died. But the pride that she felt and the fact that that was such a, a life thing for her it was very emotional. And also having the whole family there, having my daughters and things. So I think it was more the associations. It's nice to be recognised, but it was the associations actually that meant most. A significant pat on the back and a nice family day out by the sense of things. It was both of those things, and both of those things are very nice to have. Let me take you back. As I said in my intro, almost 40 years. You left university in 1979. Ouch. Did you say 40 years? Anyway, it only seems like yesterday. Let me ask you, what motivated a career in advertising? Why did, why did you decide to go into that? Well, it's an interesting word to choose that, what motivated me. I think, to be honest, it was, number one, why not? Number two is I didn't want to do any more studying or exams, and that kind of ruled a few things out. I wasn't academically shiny enough to do the McKinsey route or the BCG and so on. And actually, I love television, and I thought I wanted to do something that was vaguely attached to the media. And I think my first attempt was the BBC. So the next thing really was advertising, something attached to media. I interviewed about media sales. I don't think I really understood the difference, frankly, between copywriting and sign writing. I mean, God knows young people have to prepare so much and intensely these days and actually know what they're talking about. When I look back on how little I really knew about the advertising business, it slightly shocks me. On the other hand, in those days, you had plenty of jobs. I mean, you know, companies were falling over themselves to go to some of the best universities on the milk round. They had plenty of jobs on offer. It was very competitive, relatively speaking. But on the other hand, 
interesting people, interesting topics, TV commercials, attached to media, what's not to like. And I imagine the world of advertising in the late 70s, very early 80s was a very different place before the Thatcherite revolution had really taken hold, before the deregulation of the city. Describe for me what it felt like, perhaps compared to what it became afterwards when you first began. One of the things I might notice particularly, and maybe this reflected the first agency I worked at, which was called Darcy McManus Amasius. It used to be called the Grocer of St. James's Square, which is quite interesting because actually that reflected the fact in those days, brands were pretty much, they were packets and boxes and cans and so on. And you had a brand manager that you worked with and you did advertising. And that advertising tended to be TV, if you were lucky, cinema, if it was sexy, lots of posters and press advertising. And that was sort of it. That's what you did. It was a much, much slower business. I mean, in every way. I mean, it used to take days to get a letter out. I remember you'd handwrite a letter, you'd give it to the team secretary. When she got round maybe to yours at the bottom of the pile because her boss was at the top of the pile. She might have then typed it out. And it took days to get things done. You had to send letters or phone people. So the metabolism of the business was totally, totally different. And I have to say, people used to have lunch in those days. And they didn't just go out for lunch, but also they drank. They drank alcohol. And there was an executive dining room. If you were lucky, you would be invited with the client. And I think in those days, I'm afraid that if you were a, a young female account executive, you used to get invited, possibly not for very professional input. So you would show up to the executive dining room, you might be offered gin and tonic or a, a pre-prandial, then you'd have wine and then you'd be offered cigars, port, brand. I mean, you know, goodness knows how people stayed awake in the afternoon and frankly, they often didn't. So it was a slower business. It was an entertainment type business that would either be entertaining other members of staff or entertaining the clients. And if you could sort of fit it in, you'd obviously do some work around the outside. But those were the days of Benson and Hedges commercials, huge, great cinema commercials, you know, Collett Dickinson Pierce, Cabri smash. I mean, it was a golden era in so many ways of advertising. You touched on about a, a couple of things I was going to ask you about there, one of which was in reference to the way perhaps women in advertising were not portrayed in ads, but actually women working in advertising. You obviously achieved a lot in that era, rising to become chair of Saatchi and Saatchi. Did you feel like you were blazing a trail for women in advertising. I can't say I thought about it like that, although I do remember, after I joined the advertising agency, in a casual conversation some months later, uh, one of the directors mentioned to me in passing that it was quite unusual that because this year there had been equal numbers of male and female graduate trainees, which was different from previous years, and they felt that they were you know, nudging the peanut forward here in having equal representation of men and women. I mean, also, it was only recently that women were able to buy stuff on higher purchase without having their husband's signature. I mean, it was a it was a very, very different era. But I have to say that I do think my generation was the first really to expect that things would be sort of equal and be treated as such. And there were obviously some dark patches from time to time. I mean, in those days, from time to time, you would need to take clients out. You know, with the 
glorious benefit of hindsight, if either of my daughters or some of the young people, young women I work with today felt pressurized into taking older male clients out because they thought that they needed to do that in order to advance their careers, I look back and think that was clearly not the right practice, wasn't the right behavior. But at the time, you were having fun. It was an interesting business. There were lots of talented people around. The brands were exciting. The TV campaigns were very iconic. And you just got on and did the job and enjoyed it and didn't really notice too much, which I might actually look at in retrospect and think that wasn't quite right. I mean, thank goodness, perhaps, that uh, social norms and the realms of acceptability are very different now than they totally, were. Totally different now. And as you say, not just in the business, but also the the diversity agenda, the inclusion, the efforts that so many companies go to to make sure that actually who you are on the inside of organisations vaguely reflects what's going on in the outside world. And it makes me feel cheerful, more cheerful about the future and more cheerful, frankly, than maybe got a right to at the moment, bearing in mind all the proverbial SH something T that's going on in the world. Let's just stay in the past for a moment. You said that you lived in a world of perhaps longer lunches and a different working world back then, but you did have time occasionally to do some work. And I imagine working at Saatchi and Saatchi's in the 80s, you oversaw and were even involved in some significant marketing moments. Are there any in particular that you want to pinpoint as big achievements? Uh, when I went to Saatchi and Saatchi, the first time in the late late 1980s, 1990, we produced an amazing commercial call face of British Airways, which was a whole sort of stadium full of people coming together, forming shapes, coming together with emotion, greeting and meeting each other with an operatic soundtrack. And it was a mould breaker, uh, which is very sort of era-defining TV commercial because it showed the world with borders and barriers coming down and people connecting with each other. I mean, frankly, we might do with a little bit of that more at the moment, but it was ambitious, it was exciting, it was inspiring. I've still got the one-page brief that fed into this award-winning TV commercial. And I remember the first time I saw that commercial, I saw it in Paul Arden's office, who was quite a legendary creative director at Saatchi and Saatchi. And I freely admit it made me it made me cry. It was very, very affecting. And if actually communication really gets to you that way, you know that something's going right. There is a general sense, perhaps, that advertising isn't as wide angle and as cinematic and as emotional. I just wondered mm. from somebody who's perhaps seen a lot of advertising in their time. Is that something that you would acknowledge? I think that it just shows up in different ways. That would be my perspective on some of these sort of big screen and big productions, very emotive campaigns. They do still exist. And of course, you know that you've succeeded because if people want to share and talk about what you've done, I mean, that amplifies your budget no end. And frankly, that's a killer insight about the digital age. I mean, you need to do something great and then people need to love it enough to share it. And that goes for the brands themselves, not just the communication. People talk about branding in a digital age and they want you to show sexy YouTube videos or social media stunts, which obviously we're all very, very happy to share. But the killer insight about branding in the digital age, you've got to be a 
bloody good business in the first place, where people care about what they do, where they're prepared to tell other people that it's really good, where they're clear about how they're all building a successful, sustainable future together. And they're excited to do that. And of course, you know, nowadays you can't move for books and articles about purpose as though somehow it's a new idea. I mean, it is a newly minted and newly reprinted idea, purpose. And yet, actually, it's been a fundamental driver in the most successful brands since the year dot. So all I'd say about this big production thing is, obviously, you know, production costs, for lots of reasons, have come down relative to how much you might spend on where they appear and so on. And we've got so many more interesting ways in which to be creative. But a fantastic commercial and can be shared and make a huge impact way beyond what you might have spent in the first place. Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. The next stage of your career that I wanted to talk about, which was your time in Interbrand, where you pioneered the idea of brands as tangible assets, which seems like I would know one nowadays, but I just wondered if you met any, or your efforts met any particular resistance when when you introduced this idea. Well, I really wish I could say that I invented the idea. I didn't. But what I do hope I did was I saw the fantastic potential in that idea. Because even though some companies will think these brands are important, and even though brands had changed hands between companies for many times more than their strictly tangible value. There was still a lot of suspicion, a lot of a, a lot of sort of vague talk about how to really represent this in the language of finance. And what was interesting is that the invention of brand valuation as a discipline was first met with disdain or mocking or whatever. And now of course a lot of how brand valuation is done is recognized as good practice. And obviously, when you're acquiring an asset, you want to do some element of brand valuation because you need to make sure that you reflect that. So it was frustrating at times when people didn't sort of get that this was a very important discipline. I think, though, that this has changed. I mean, number one is that it was a great conversation to be had at the right level is a great boardroom agenda item, which is you could put a hard financial value in financial language on what was otherwise seen as being a sort of soft, intangible asset. That was a big win. And I definitely saw the potential for doing that. And in fact, when I was working on British Airways uh, all those years ago, I asked Interbrand at the time to come and do a brand valuation on British Airways because I was frustrated that actually the advertising was viewed as a an, just as a cost, as an expense, as opposed to an investment in what was actually a very crucial corporate asset. So expressing the value of marketing and its impact in financial terms and also demonstrating that British Airways brand was a significant asset that actually was driving a lot of the value in that business. That was quite a revelation to many people at the time. And so that conversation has happened in several companies and several boardrooms. And I'm proud of the fact that we did manage to make it feel that it wasn't just a marketing thing. It's a corporate thing. It's a company thing. And I think that's been a big step on as well for marketing too, certainly over the last 10 years, which is the brand going from the kind of the sort of remit of just the marketing department 
to actually marketing practitioners understanding you need to open the brand to the whole organization. You've got to make sure that everybody kind of gets what it is that they need to do to generate value from this thing. Because after all, it is the most important and sustainable asset any organization has got. It can occasionally be a bit frustrating when people say, yeah, we know the brand's important, but our most important assets are our people. On the people front, the other thing about people, of course, is they have a nasty habit of leaving or taking their clients elsewhere. So you need to build something and build value into the something that's going to generate long-term sustainable value. And that is the brand. And it doesn't matter whether you're on the advertising business or in the manufacturer business or in the service business or any business, even not-for-profit, you need to be generating an enterprise, generating an organization that's going to have some sort of sustained and sustainable impact and value. Should I get off my soapbox now? I, I would like you to climb back on it. I find this fascinating. Warming to some of the points that you raised there. I mean, CMOs move on, CEOs move on. How does a company embed this notion of brand value into its DNA then? Because as I say, it can't just have a CMO as a champion or a finance director or a CEO as a champion. Mm. So is it just about getting something on a balance sheet or is there something else that companies need to do? The brand valuation initiative, the brand valuation idea, etc., was and is powerful because it demonstrates the power of the asset in financial terms. And frankly, that's how to get into the boardroom. You need to use the language of finance because the language of the boardroom is financial. And if you don't speak that language, you're not going to get yourself or the issue into the boardroom. That's why it's been very important. I think, though, what's what's happened more recently is we've almost seen a transfer of the balance of the conversation from the balance sheet to the income statement. You need to understand how a brand is generating value and also saving costs, making efficiencies in the business every day. And of course, you'll use that income statement. You'll think about what is it that's driving the top line? Where are new customers coming from? Why do existing customers keep on buying? And also, how does the brand drive efficiencies because of consistency, because of deduplication? There's a whole lot of of other factors that might go into saving money and also how that gives you a reliable bottom line. So I think what's interesting is the philosophy of brand valuation was born out of the philosophy that the brand was a separable asset, i.e., you know, you could separate the brand and the name and the associations from the physical parts of the production and the product and everything else. And that would have a value in its own right. Now, that is true. However, What's very significant here is that if you are building a great brand, if the brand is working as it needs to in an organization, or brands, because obviously any of this is microcosms of individual brands within a larger company, or if you have got same name, same company, a monolithic sort of branded business, the same philosophies apply. And what you're going to try and do is to make that brand show up through everything you do, because every part of how you touch the customer and every part of how you touch your employee, that can add some kind of distinctive or interesting difference and add some kind of value to the experience that they're going to get. And that in itself is very good at building, again, longer term, broader enterprise value. So how do you do that? You do that because you attach it to left brain issues. So you persuade people, you get people to understand this is a rational business asset. It's a very important part of how you're going to generate hard value if you get it right. But also, of course, because we're all human beings, we're all a bit messy, we have feelings and so on, you need to apply a huge dollop of the right brain here, which is you need to produce a story, a purpose, a narrative. You need to produce 
ideas, for behaviors, for tools, for recruitment issues and so on that really do make sure that people do something that is carrying on building the brand. And that means how you, as I say, how you recruit people, what sort of people you're recruiting that are going to be suitable for building that brand? How are you going to be training them? How are you going to be measuring them? How do you answer the phone? All these areas of experience have got to be informed by something that's going to have some difference and distinctiveness that sets you apart from the competition and makes people think you're just a bit better or a lot better. And it's a hyper-competitive world out there. And unless you are consciously using all the assets that you've got and making the brand make all the other assets work better, whether it's the, you know, it's the factory production or whether it's the people or whatever it is, you're not making the very most of this particular asset, which, in my view, as I say, adds value to all the rest. I mentioned in your the introduction that you have had a lot of non-executive director roles and you have a couple, at least two, at the moment. What appeals to you about that? I think they call it a portfolio career. Mm. Well, I think it's particularly interesting to be in the boardroom looking in more detail and from a different perspective at several other businesses. I mean, obviously, I've, you know, throughout my career in branding, and particularly I was at Saatchi and Saatchi, I mean, it was an agency that tended to get into the boardroom. I mean, it was, again, that's what made it such an exciting place to be because you felt as though you could make a real impact on a whole range of organizations. So I've obviously appeared in boardrooms, presented and so on, but actually sitting around the boardroom table and thinking about whether it's governance, whether it's resource allocation, whether or not it's you know the executive team or remuneration and so on, these are key levers in how businesses work at the most senior level. And it's a privilege to be able to sit around and discuss that. But also, it's very good to be able to bring you know, whatever practitioner insights you've had in your career. Getting the customer in the boardroom, I know that sounds completely obvious, but nevertheless, I have sat in boardrooms or presented to them where the customer actually came pretty low down the agenda. You know, you get a huge pack on the financial detail, but much less information and insights about the customer. You're not generating value from customers. You're not generating value as a business. So having that kind of practitioner inside at boardroom level, I thought was important. I thought I could add something and equally I was getting something back. So that sort of pushed me pulley, I thought was was really interesting. Also, the fact that I've been chief executive, that does help too, because you're not just a senior practitioner, but also you know what it's like to wake up in the middle of the night worrying about whether or not you're going to win that business or retain that business, whether or not you're going to keep the right staff, whether or not you're going to attract the right staff, managing upwards to holding companies as well as making sure that everyone in the company believes in what they're doing and wants to do a really great job. I mean, you worry about the vision thing and you worry about the lose and everything else in between. So it's very important to have, certainly from my perspective, to have been a chief executive and then to have been a chairman so that actually you could add the general governance and broader corporate issues around the table as well as your deeper practitioner skills. So it's a privilege to see it. It's really, truly interesting to see how some of the key decision decisions are taken about what resources you've got and how you're going to allocate them and how you run a company in a way that is responsible, sustainable, and also gives meaningful employment to people. And all of those things are important. I speak to a lot of senior marketers who indicate to me that it is an objective of theirs to do non-exec roles. Is there any advice that you could give to them as to how they get started? I think there are two things I'd say to CMOs. Number one is 
just make sure you're asking yourselves the right question about whether or not you could actually step up to a broader operational role as a an MD or indeed to the CEO role themselves because we need more people who come from a customer background to be right at the top of organizations. And of course, you need to ally that with a great understanding of numbers. And I don't just mean quantitative research numbers, I really mean financials and how both of those two connect with each other. The only thing I say is it is obviously very competitive getting FTSE type NED roles, and it can be a little bit catch-22. So whatever opportunities you've got to do board stuff, and I mean governance stuff and remuneration stuff, you can be a fantastic executive, but you've got to present your boardroom expertise because people are imagining that you'll be a pretty good executive if you're senior in any organisation. Between your non-exec roles and clients that you've worked with, Saatchi and Saatchi and Interbrand, etc., What's the biggest marketing achievement that you've seen? It's so difficult to avoid the cliche that sits in front of all of our noses of Apple, isn't it? I mean, it is the most overused case study in the universe, but there's a reason why it is. And that is because it is the best brand in the world at illustrating the three key things that go to make up any brilliant brand. I mean, number one, it's clear about what it stands for. Number two, it makes that show up coherently across everything it does, from the products themselves to the nerves that they repositioned as geniuses in the stores and the whole experience, which is much more about humanity and technology together. And then, of course, the advertising communications is different in an appropriate way. But the way that they've used the brand as an organizing idea is just exemplary. And then, of course, on the leadership characteristic, you know, you had obviously the um, St. Steve of Jobs who epitomized the clarity and the efficiency and the vision, of course, of the Apple brand. But also Apple have been amazingly good at restlessness, about innovation, about setting the agenda, which is not bad for something that was mocked as a niche brand in the early days. Now, they've got to really be careful, though, that they are maintaining the clarity and the efficiency that the brand has given them. Because they seem to be multiplying things like brand beliefs and so on at the moment. And ironically, Microsoft is sort of going the other way. I mean, they've now got the one Microsoft and they've got a CEO who talks about a singular vision and so on. And they're doing some pretty interesting stuff and they've pivoted the business to cloud servers. I mean, that's an interesting business in its own right. But it's difficult to beat Apple for sheer all-round brand brilliance and how they've managed to keep on motoring that. What about your biggest achievement? Well, you very kindly mentioned the CBE right at the front. And for lots of particularly personal reasons, as well as professional, that has been a great achievement. I mean, I think there are so many things in life. I also mentioned working on British Airways in such an exciting time. I was so proud that we managed to make that feel, for a period of time anyway, as absolutely the world's favourite airline, doing some of the boldest and most interesting marketing communications in the world. And I... I'm very, very proud of that too. I'm also, I'm very proud of of the people that I've recruited or that I work with over the years who have gone on also to do brilliant things. I feel so proud of what people have done. I mean, people have ended up running organisations. Helping people and enabling them to do better things and great things in their career seems to me to be a very good legacy to leave. Is there anything else that you'd like your professional legacy to be? I think apart from making sure that you know we've got a new generation of leaders who really do bring 
the whole human thing into business. We need a much better chemical mix at the top. We need many more women to be running organizations, mixing it with other people running organizations. And if I can make a difference to that, I would love to. But the other thing, I just happened to be at a board session about AI yesterday. And it was a collection of non-executive directors sitting across loads and loads of different businesses. And I have to say, those non-executive sessions, the age group tends to be a bit older than if it were executive. And yet, at this session on AI, there were some people in their 70s and their 80s who were still really curious about what was happening and just wanting to stay engaged and in touch. And I thought, you know, you know, in my 80s and 90s, I do bloody well hope that I'm still that nosy and that curious. I mean, I was a planner and planners seem to stay nosy, hopefully till their dying day. And I hope that that will be a personal legacy that I will have, which is stay curious because there is so much exciting stuff going on. I, When one just thinks about what's possible now, how to understand people and things like that, I think it's a truly exciting time to stay alive. And it would be really fabulous to stay nosy about everything that means. That's a fantastically uplifting way to finish today. Thank you, Rita. And that's all we have time for. Thank you to my guest, Rita Clifton. You've been listening to Marketing Week Meet, sponsored by Salesforce and brought to you by Something Else, with me, Russell Parsons, and producer Laura Hyde. You can subscribe via iTunes and SoundCloud and listen via marketingweek.com, where you can hear previous episodes with the likes of Byron Sharp, Sil Seller, and Tom Goodwin. Next month's Marketing Week meets will be a special live recording at the Festival of Marketing in London, where we will be breaking with convention by meeting Marketing Week columnist Mark Ritson. And it will be those in attending asking the questions and conducting the interview. So if you want to be there in person and pose a question of your own to Mark, then the only way that you can do that is to visit thefestivalofmarketing.com for more information and to buy a ticket. Until next time, goodbye. Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs.